0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and proclamation of his promises. So here's what we're at. We're looking at Ephesians 24, 25 through 32. If we look at the beginning of Ephesians 4, what we're going to discover is this anthem of oneness. So Paul comes out the gate and he talks about One God, one church, one sacrifice, one Lord. He just has this anthem that he is declaring of oneness, of unity. And now what he's going to get ready to lead us into is an understanding of a contending for that unity and also an awareness and caution of behavior that would disrupt it, right? That would seek to actually disrupt unity and create divisiveness, And so the new man, what we see that we talked about last week, is sovereignly brought into the new community where he is challenged to contend for the Spirit's unity. And Paul gives us four key areas where our former lives can seek to undo the unity of our new community made up of new people. And these four areas are this falsehood, unrighteous anger, stealing, and speech. So when we kick off on verse 25, we're gonna see this beginning statement, therefore, right? And anytime we look at hermeneutics or our understanding of how to study the scriptures, that's what hermeneutics mean, right? A good hermeneutical practice is anytime you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it there for? Good job. (laughs) Slow clap yourself. Now, So we have to say, what is that there for? So it's always looking at the pretext leading up to it. Because we are new people in Christ Jesus, therefore, we should act this way in new community. Right? And so this helps to build context in our understanding as we want to understand the scriptures. And so when we look in verses 17 through 24, they speak of the old ways of living under the darkened Understanding of life, walking in falsehood and idolatry in the light. One that has, 25 begins and it brings in the natural outflow of a life in the light. One that has put away falsehood to now step out into the light of the truth of who God is and what he has declared about us. See, he's not talking about putting away lying necessarily. He's not talking about you who keeps going around lying. He talks about you who walked in a state of falsehood and deception and darkness. It wasn't necessarily what came out of your mouth that he's addressing. It was what you inherently believed in that created you to remain and stay in a a state of rebellion, sin, and darkness. And he says, so therefore, because you have put away such falsehood, he's talking about your belief structure, your worldview, your God, because you have put away those things, speak truth To your neighbor. So since we have put away falsehood in our totality, now we seek to bring others into the very truth that we are walking in by declaring it. You see, Paul shows us working this out in two ways, a missional way and a maturity way. So he says first, speak to your neighbor. That's those outside of the church. Then he gives like this clarifying reason why. Because we... Our members of one another. He's speaking to the church. So he directs his conversation into a different context. But when he says, speak truth to your neighbor, this is a missional endeavor. The missional way to reach into the darkness that our neighbors are living in is with the truth of the gospel so that the spirit might in 50 years or so into the light. You see, the church has had something wrong for the last 150 years or so. Before this new wave crept in, the church has historically been united around its confession. Now, when I say confession, I don't mean you spilling your guts about your sin or talking about the bad things that you thought about this week. What I mean is confession, and this is what we believe. So the church, historically, is united around its confession. It has only been in the last 150 years or so that the church has sought to unite around compassion. And we're mixing the two up. You see, our confession should drive us to compassion. But what we've accidentally done, or unintentionally done, is been sought, we've sought to be unified around acts of compassion, and the church has lost its confession. Because what do we say? Well, doctrine divides us. Theology divides divides us. These things that divide us, let us unify around something not so combative, not so confrontational. Let's unite around compassion. And so we seek to unite around feeding the poor, building homes for the homeless, doing this, that, and the other. The reality is those are good things, but that's not why the church unites. Because what's happened that we've seen is that we've actually lost our message, We can invite the world into the very things that we're doing and there's no challenge to change. They can have the same message we do. Let's help Houston, they got hit by a a hurricane. Hey, let's go and, and help these people because they need it. Let's go bring relief and aid and dig wells and so forth like this. The things that the church used to be known for, the world is equally known for them as well without any confession of who Jesus is and what he's done for us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The church has never been intended to be united around compassion. We've been intended to be united around our confession. How do you become a Christian? How do you become a member of this new community? With your mouth you declare Jesus is Lord. That's a doctrinal confession in and of itself. You're saying Jesus is God? What a statement you're making. And then that confession drives us to compassion. If our confession does not drive compassion, our theology is weak, anemic, and useless. We should be driven to acts of compassion, but not seek unity around them and of themselves, because it is for the benefit of our neighbor that we declare truth, that they may come out of the darkness we were once in, and be brought into the light by the power of the Spirit. The second way Paul addresses this is in maturity. The maturity way is to recognize that remaining in the light is a blessing of the Lord. And we as a body are tasked to walk with one another in an effort to remain there. It's a blessing of God that if you think wicked, you feel wicked. That's God's love for you. God's hatred and condemnation on your soul would be that if you thought wicked, if you act wicked, you felt numb to it. God in his graciousness and his love has caused us to be aware, our eyes opened, so that we might see our sin and feel grief and godly remorse, that we would turn to the cross and beg God for forgiveness, which he freely gives because Christ has overcome our sin, right? This is a blessing of God, that when we think wicked, we feel wicked, and so we have to remain in this new light that we find ourselves in for the sake of maturity, there's truth in both who we are. We must walk in this truth. Who we are, this is our transparency, and truth in who he says we are. This is gospeling one another. So there's a, oftentimes our lives and the reality of what God says about us through his gospel don't line up. And if we allow ourselves and our sin and our depravity that remains in us to overcome us, we won't find victory in the truth and reality of what the gospel declares about us that we have victory in Christ Jesus, that we have been forgiven of all our sin, that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave, that he is victorious and he gives his righteousness to us. We can't earn our salvation, therefore he earned it for us. So we have to not only be transparent, but we also have to seek to be gospeled so that we remember who we are in Christ Jesus. You see, we as a church have a deep-seated propensity to want to begin placing back on us the layers of darkness that Christ has set us free from. And we need the body to combat that. As a pastor with the ministry experience that I have, I can tell you this right now, I can know instantly when a person is being entrapped and oppressed by their sin. Here's how we know, the first sign is you start removing yourself from community. It's the very first sign that you're allowing sin to entrap you. We need community so that we can walk in transparency and we can be gospeled about who we are in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you something about what the scriptures declare about the devil, our enemy. He says about him that he is a roaring lion who seeks the earth, seeking whom he may devour. You ever watch Nat Geo, Discovery Channel? Only on Shark Week, is that what it is? Yeah, okay. Educate yourself a little more and uh, watch it beyond Shark Week. No, uh, I love watching that stuff. But here's one thing that you realize. When they show lions hunting, the lion doesn't attack the herd. The lion isolates the weak, the young, the hurt from the herd so that it can attack and kill it. The devil's number one tactic for destroying your life is to isolate you. God's number one tactic to keep you in his grace is community. He's given you the church. He's given you the church so that you might be remaining in the light. Praise God for the spirit power, right? But what does the spirit use? The spirit uses the church. Christ didn't die for you and you alone, right? Christ died for his church of which the new man is brought into the new community that we might remain in his grace, that we might be transformed into the image of his son. Deeper. Through the Spirit's power, but in the context of community, we need the body to combat this. Verses twenty-six through twenty-seven. It says, "And give, uh, uh, be angry." It talks about be angry. Man, I love this. I, I I'm usually too angry. Most people would say, uh, "I think I'm angry enough." Uh, no, uh, no, I, I do. I do struggle with anger issues. I do struggle with being harsh and cruel, and I love the freedom that this scripture gives me, but I also value and love its temperance that it seeks to bring and its caution that it seeks to bring to my life, where I've allowed my anger to control me, and it's gone from righteous anger to unrighteous anger. But we, as Christians, need to be more angry. We need to be more angry. If we have truly been brought into the light, through the embracing of truth, then we should be vehemently angry at the lies and darkness that seeks to continually enslave the people that we love. You see, the church has gotten this wrong. The church has gotten this wrong for too long. We have believed the lie that a love for people means to allow them to do as they please. But we have to see that allowing us to do what we please would have meant God's hatred toward us rather than his love for us. This is what I love about the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace and the scriptures do not declare God loved you for who you are where you are, and he's gonna come and coddle and nurse you, and it's okay to remain in your brokenness and to, to be who you are. This is just you, right? And I'm gonna love you with no conditions, no strings attached. That's not the scriptures. That's not what the gospel declares, nor the doctrines of grace promote. What does it say? It says you hated God. You did not love him. You did not love his ways. You rebelled against him. You sought to defeat him as a foe to rob him of the glory that he deserves. And God in his power and sovereignty overcame your will and caused you to love him. How beautiful is that? How beautiful that he wants us, he causes us to love that which is most lovely, which is himself. He overcame my will. Praise God. You know where I was going? I was going to the path of destruction. I was a drug user, a womanizer. I was lazy. I did not work. I wanted people to take care of me. I was entitled. I was a punk. God overcame my will so that I would not remain in my path of destruction, but so that I would love him. His strings attach our righteous living. Conduct yourselves as to your reality, which is Christ Jesus in you. We should be vehemently angry at the lies that still entwine us and our brothers and our sisters. You see, we've gotten this wrong for too long. God does not desire for us to stay where we are and love us there. He desires us to change, and his love pushes us toward righteous transformation. We have exchanged an effort to love them, the world, most commonly and honestly, in just an effort for them to love us. You see, our acceptance of the world and our unbelieving friends is ultimately self-serving. Because this is what we declare with our life. I'm okay with your damnation, as long as you're not mad at me. I'm okay with your damnation, as long as you're not mad at me. This is what we declare through false compassion, in the midst of known brokenness. You see, when it comes to living missionally, when it comes to, and especially a disciple of Jesus Christ, Too often, the church has got it wrong, and especially in a young church, a hip, urban, hipster, trendy, whatever you wanna call Missio Day, we have not intentionally strived to be hipster. I guess I'm like, I'm more hipster than, I'm led on to believe. Uh, I think I just like nice things. Uh, But uh, however, it is extremely easy for us to be known by, hey, we're Christians and we're cool. Man, we go to to Taylor Swift concerts. We... uh, Uh, Maybe we'll smoke an American spirit here and there. We drink craft beer. Uh, You know, we're we're cool. You can like us, world. Hey, guess what, world? You can like us because we're cool. And we haven't provoked change. We haven't provoked righteousness. Where it's actually our efforts to be cool are self-serving, and we're declaring to a fallen world we're okay with you going to hell. Just don't be mad at me. Just think I'm cool. John Stott says this about the absence of holy anger. He declares, indeed, when we fail to do so, feel or express holy anger, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. My greatest concern about a holy anger is not so much that we don't express it, but it's that we don't even feel it. We're not angry at the wickedness that surrounds us. We're not angry at the unrighteousness that is displayed, that is marched through our streets, that is shouted at in every corner of our culture. We're not upset about it. In fact, some of us participate in it. Some of us encourage it. Some of us in our silence sit there and let it stomp all over us in the gospel. Why aren't we angry that they're dying and going to hell and we're sitting there quiet and comfortable? Why aren't we angry about that? You see, Paul understands the communicable nature of God in us that is anger. So when we talk about a communicable nature, there's aspects of God's character that is anger communicated to us. We share it with him. There's also aspects of God that we don't share with him, but there is a communicable nature of God that is anger. If you look throughout the scriptures, God is angry. That's a fact. You can read it throughout the scriptures. He is angry. Is he other things? Absolutely. He is love. He is just. He is jealous. He is merciful. He is vengeful. But God is angry, and we share in this chin inside of it, under our race it, Walk in it, but seek to function inside of it under our new reality. And Paul gives us three cautions to do this. Number one, he says, do not sin. Too often the outflow of our anger is sinful. And the way we talk about people, the way we act out in spite and bitterness, and the way ultimately we desire revenge rather than redemption. In our anger, we too often desire revenge rather than redemption. When we look at the pursuit of Christ in the cross, what we see is one who was angry at our sin, but ultimately has pursued our redemption through his finished work. Even in uh, in the epistles, when you see the apostles correcting and rebuking people, at times even kicking them out of the church, their end hope for, if you read the, what their motivation is behind that, is so that that person would be restored. It's not so that they would be left to destruction. It's so that they would be restored, that redemption would be felt and experienced within the church. Their motivation wasn't revenge to get back at them, but their motivation was redemption. Paul gives us a second warning. Do not let the sun go down. Now, Paul is not talking about a literal going down of the sun. Is that a good practice? Absolutely, especially if you're married. Don't go to bed angry at one another. I think it's a phenomenal practice, but that's not exactly what Paul means. If we took this in a literal sense, uh, we have to understand that we actually interpret all things through time and space. Those are two factors that we interpret information. So, if we were to live in this little city called Barrow, Alaska, Uh, who experiences uninterpreted daylight for 80 days straight, we could hold on to our sin for a long time, right? Some of you people are like, man, that sounds good. I can just be angry for a grip. I don't even have to let go of it. I can just remain in my anger. And the sun ain't gone down yet, right? He's not meaning this in a literal sense. He's giving us principles to live by in this understanding of not allowing our sin to what? To be nursed or to fester. If Paul is speaking about anything, he's speaking to the expedited nature of which the one who was wronged should go to seek peace with their offender. If Paul is addressing anything in this statement, he's not addressing the one who caused the offense, he's addressing the one who's been offended process to pursue peace with him who harmed you. We should be pursuers. This is again, this is, goes back to the gospel. The same men who pulled beard from Christ's face, who pierced his side with spears, who nailed him to a tree, who whipped him with nine tails. In the process of all of that offense, what was Jesus doing? He was pursuing peace peace with those who hated him he was pursuing redemption for those who had fallen away for his enemies he was making friends us who have been offended should with haste seek reconciliation with our offender ultimately all anger must find its rest in the revenge and the judgment of god alone it's not ours to handle it's not ours to handle it's his Thirdly, Paul says give no opportunity to the devil. When we aren't righteously responsible with our anger, I'm gonna define that as anger rooted in a forsaking of God's word and rested in God's sovereignty, we allow the devil to exploit it into unrighteous anger which threatens us into places of hatred, violence, or breaking of fellowship. When we allow the devil to have a hold of our anger, when we don't temper it with the gospel, when we don't seek to put into place these community cautions that Paul gives us, and we let him have a hold of it, he's going to run wild with it. And it's going to take us to places of hatred, and violence, and the breaking of fellowship that we never had even imagined. Verse 28 talks about the thief causing him to no longer steal. What we see communicated here is that honest work builds into the fabric of community to bring resources for the benefit of all. Honest work builds into the fabric of community to bring resources for the benefit of all. When we steal, we ultimately tear at that fabric. We create distrust and an unwillingness to be open with our resources as we should. When thieves are around, what do we do? We transfer into modes of Protection and preservation. When thieves are in your midst, why why, why do you think we have locks on our doors? Why do we have codes on everything? Why do we have passwords and all these different forms of security in our life? Because we know that thieves are around, and what does that do? That causes us to revert to modes of protection and preservation. In the midst of this new community, when there are thieves, or people who abuse even the generosity of others, It causes them to retract instead of walking with open hands, freely giving as they should. The community of new people should be a place where the thief no longer resides so that our resources are freely shared and given in joy. This is what we see in Acts 2. They sold all things and had all things in common, right? There was this open-handedness that they walked in in the new community so that all had and when we abuse those resources, when we take advantage of people's generosity, when we become thieves in and of ourselves, we cause people who would desire to be open-handed to start closing their grasp on their possessions. And I love here that Paul answers the why to our working. It's so important to answer this. Why do we work? Especially for me, as a person who was anti-work, I, I, I too often tied work to my father. And I said, I never wanna be like this, so I won't work. And then I didn't realize how much insecurity, how much anxiety, how much fear I was building into my wife and my family. And to see this why helps to redeem my, my vision of work. And so Paul says this. He, he, well, here's the reality for us. Most of us, we work for comfort, We work for security, or we work for image projection. But Paul tells us that the why of our work is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We work so that others might have. This doesn't mean that we work and go without. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we should be overly aware with how we can have and others around us can have also. This doesn't mean we work so that we don't have, right? We're not so sacrificial that we're sacrificing our own livelihood in the pursuit of it, but we are aware about what it means for us to have. We're modest in our understanding and pursuit to have, and we work hard enough so that others around us might have also. The church should be a house of of a multitude of diverse resources that we can give to one another in generosity for the building up of the church. And so when you work, as you labor, how are you processing your labor with the needs and wants of the community that you find yourself in? How do you have so that others might also have? Verse 29 talks about our speech, our speech. And if I'm honest... This is where I should just, I feel like I should just go sit down. I honestly feel like I'm not even, should be allowed to preach this text. My mouth has gotten me into so much trouble. And for the last 16 months, I have been under a microscope when it comes to my behavior and who I am and how I respond in certain situations. Uh, Too hard. You can ask my wife, my confider. God has given me, Uh, two great helpers and defenders, the Holy Spirit and my wife. And it has been tough. I've wanted to run, I've wanted to flee, but I have rested on this promise in Romans 8 that God works all things for good for those who love him. And as hard as this has been, clinging to that promise that this is for my good, I might not be getting what I want, but I'm confident at the end of this, I will have better than I ever imagined I wanted in the first place. By other, but if you asked, I believe that my speech would not be defined by others as building up, as timely, or as full of grace. Probably it'd be most described as destructive, unwanted, and full of judgment. But, by the continued work of the Spirit and His grace alive in me, my prayer is that this would change about me. And part of my confession before you, the church, is so that you help to hold me accountable. Let me tell you something. I need you just as much as you need me. In over seven years of leading missional communities, I promise you I can count on one hand how many times somebody asked me how I'm doing. If you're a pastor, if you're a leader, you don't get asked how you're doing. You don't get asked what you're struggling with in your sin. You don't get asked how you've repented lately. You don't get asked if you're okay. We need you as a pastoral team to be the body for us. We're not exempt from what we preach if you don't ask me how I'm doing, if you're not asking me if I'm okay, if you're not asking me about the sin and prodding into my life about the sin that is in my heart, it will overcome me and it might destroy me. The average lifespan of a pastor in a church is three years. Three years. Why? There's multifaceted reason, but I can guarantee you one of them is because people don't stop to ask them how they are. So be the community for me and for the other pastors here at Miss You. In this verse, Paul admonishes us to not let any corrupting thing come out of our mouth. This means language that seeks to tear down, mar, alter for the worse. Our speech should do the exact opposite. It should build up. It should strengthen. It should extend grace. And Paul gives us three ways in which this can happen. He says, first, that our speech should be good for building up. Our gifting and responsibility in community is for the purpose of building up and our speech should reflect this. So when we see why did the spirit give gifts, diverse gifts to the body in 1 Corinthians, it declares that it was for the building up of his church. Our speech should reflect the giftedness of the spirit inside of us. We should be a people who use our words to see others be built into the people who God wants them to be and not a people who tear down people with our words because they don't fit the image of what we want them to be. Too often, my hastiness in my speech or my directness or however you want to label it, crude, harsh, foul, has been because... Instead of seeking to build up people into what God has called them to be, into the image he's calling them into, I have an image I want them to be forced into, and so I tear them down and deconstruct them to try and get them to fit into that. And I've sought my own plans and my own agendas rather than that of what the Lord has declared. Number two, Paul says, this fits the occasion, This speaks to time and space. Sometimes we say things when it isn't the right time to say them, and our words lose their intended effect. And I believe that usually it's because we say them too late rather than too soon. Often we wait weeks and months, or we never say anything at all. We push it off, and we push it off because we don't like confrontation, because we don't wanna feel weird, because we don't like however it makes you socially feel in that circumstance. But let me tell you something. If you love your brother, the Bible is very clear, black and white, no matter what your personality type is, you go to him. And in love, you declare truth and pray with him and seek to restore him that he might live and walk in the grace of which he was called. And so for us, too often... We wait too long to address issues. This happens in the church. Let me tell you something. We hear about the times where it has been weeks going on in conversation before it ever even gets to a pastor and it's about us. We know we tick you off. We know we make you angry. We know that we have built distrust in you at times because of our inability to communicate properly the way we should to our members. We know this. Please come talk to us. Please don't call... Go and talk to every Joe, Tom, and Sally in this church about it before you come talk to us. Honor the scriptures. Honor your brother. Come talk to us. And let this be practiced with you and one another. Now, is there a time to be patient, a time to wait? Absolutely. Should everything be done with haste? No, especially if sometimes we say things in the wrong spaces in the midst of a public audience and we add shame or humiliation unnecessarily. I'll give you two examples. When it comes to the wrong space and understanding the proper spaces that we should address our brothers and use our speech wisely is in Matthew 18. As Jesus is walking out, how do we walk out biblical uh, discipline within the church? Step number one is what? Go to your brother privately, one-on-one. Go privately to your brother and call him to repentance. That's the first step that Jesus gives us in his own teaching about how to deal with people in their sin. We go to them privately. But another example where there's maybe a necessity to speak immediately and in the presence of all is with Paul and Peter. So Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus, there's a story in the Bible where he is sitting with some Gentiles eating. And what happens is some Jews walk in. Now, customary to his life as a Jew, if you eat with Gentiles, you're considered unclean. And so when these other Jews came in to sit and eat where he was, he got up from the table and sat with them so that he would would not provoke judgment upon himself. Paul was there, and what did Paul do? Immediately, and to his face, the Bible says. I love that, just God, I, don't, I just imagine maybe Paul was like even a shorter dude and he got up on his tiptoes in Peter's face just giving it to him, right? Anyway, uh, to his face he rebuked him. Now, why was the space important for that? I think that the space was important. This is me, this is, right, the, the book of Justin Ramos, uh, because those Gentiles felt fought for. Man, Paul was putting on display publicly, you're worth fighting for. Jesus died for you, you're a part of this church. Don't let this man's foolishness and disbelief cause you to feel like you're an outsider, like you're dirty and forsaken as we've treated you for thousands of years because you weren't of the way of the Jew, but you were a way of the Gentile. Man, Paul built worth into those people by confronting Peter to his face. There are times where expedited, immediate confrontation in public spaces is necessary. But let's not make that the norm, right? Let's make that the, uh, what do you call that? The, uh, the not norm? That one. <laughs> Number three, he says this. Give grace to those who hear. All speech should be seasoned with grace. Even our attempts to bring correction and rebuke should be soaked in the grace that the blood of Jesus provides for us. Amen? Amen. Verse 30, he talks about this grieving of the Holy Spirit. You see, we are ultimately made new people by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who not only begins this work in us but sustains us and empowers us in ongoing work in us to renew the image of God in us. Our conduct cannot undo the Spirit's work of salvation in our lives but it can cause him sorrow in the midst of his working. You see, the Spirit works in oneness, making us one with Jesus the Son and making us one with his body, the church. Our sin frustrates these realities and opposes the Spirit's power and purposes in his work. You see, oneness, making us one with Jesus the Son and making us one with his body, the church. And we see this, Exercise of this in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus in John 17 prays to the Father, and he says, Father, I pray that the ones whom you give me are one as you and I are one that they would be in unity and oneness. This is, the, this is the overarching anthem of this prayer of unity and oneness that found in John 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples, whom the Father has given him, that they would be one. What's he praying for? The church that he's getting ready to go and spill his blood for, to purchase and ransom. He's praying for the church. Now, this is what I will tell you, that there is not one Prayer that Jesus declares or prays that will go unmet. If Jesus prays it, it will come to fruition. We don't serve a weak God that can't accomplish his own will. We don't serve a weak God whose arms are too short or he's too weak to reach out in strength and power to accomplish his very will. His prayer will be fully known and realized. We might not see it here on earth, because we live in this tension of what we call the already not yet. Here's another way that this is understood. We are already forgiven of our sin, cleansed from our sin, and made righteous in the midst of our sin because of the finished work of Jesus, however, we still sin, right? We still fall short, we still mess up, we still go back to our old ways at times, and so we live in this tension of already not yet. However, there is a day coming of when the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17 will be tangible and seen in the new heavens and in the new earth. Too often our conduct combats these efforts rather than builds into them, and this causes the spirit grief. You see, when Paul says that you were sealed for the day of redemption, this should call our attention to the reality that the spirit is working in us and for us in this already not yet state we find ourselves in. While we might grieve him, his seal upon us is evidence of his not giving up on us. Praise God, our sin cannot stop the plans of redemption that he has, amen? Praise God. His seal upon us should be an assurance as we walk out this process of sanctification into glorification. And then verse 31 talks about all these lists. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now that we are made new, let us place all of these things behind us, pressing into the work of the Spirit in us to walk in the reality of our oneness. This is how I would kind of wrap this whole passage of Scripture up. I would say this, that the new man we become in Christ is placed into a new community where our oneness with the Son is understood in the oneness of community. The new man we become in Christ is placed into a new community and understood. Oneness with the Son is understood in the oneness of community. We are known and understood in the context of the church. Listen to me. If a church has ever communicated or led you to believe that you have some unique, special relationship with Jesus, they lied to you. I'm not that special. You're not that special. Jesus has a universal way in which he said, you must come to me by this. He said how? Through the obedience of his word. Right? Through the obedience of his word. Through faith in him as the son of God in his life, Daryl, life what, what do you do? You live, then you die, then you're buried, and then he rose again. He's the only one. He's the only one, in case you were wondering. Um, we come to him through his terms, through his ways. He doesn't understand us in our unique personality and trying to come through us in this special way. We are the church unified, and it is by an implication of his work to save his church that I'm a benefactor of his gospel work. You see, I'm a benefactor of Christ's work on the cross. Praise God, I get the benefit of his pursuit to ransom a church for himself. Would have Christ died if only just for me? Well, I don't know, I don't like to think in hypotheticals. The reality of the nature is he died for the church and that includes more than just myself. So we are known and we are understood in the context of the church. But we often fail to operate in this in, in one of two ways. Some of us, some of us are often too busy trying to get the world to love us that we neglect cultivating the true, deep, eternal love of the church. Our conduct should not simply be to become more Christ-like in ourselves, but to work to see Christ renewed in one another. Most of the New Testament commands in the epistles about serving about caring, and about loving others is found within the context of the church. It's not found within the context of the world. So as we look in the apostles' commandments to love, care for, serve, uh, uh, sacrifice for, if we look at it in the epistles, the context is typically within the church, not for the world. The way that we live within the church should be making the world jealous as they peer from the outside. We should be radically cultivating true, deep, and eternal love within the church. If we aren't experiencing this, because we we love to have the world love us. And and you'll hear this, you kind of sense this in America. Let me tell you something, in other countries, Christians are being persecuted left and right. They're losing their lives. They're coming under oppression. They're being imprisoned. They're having to burrow underground to stay protected. Because why? Because they confess Jesus. My argument is not that just we're in an American context, but the American church has lost its edge. When we seek to cultivate relationship with the world instead of relationship within the church, there's probably two reasons that we're not experiencing criticism and rejection from the world. Number one, we aren't living missional enough to to even have unbelieving friends. Are you so... uh, 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 entrapped within this third culture of the church that you don't even go into the dark spaces, that you don't even have unbelieving friends. Look, if all, your friend, if all your missional work is to try and get other people from other churches to come to this one, stop. I don't want it. We don't want it. We want unbelieving people who are lost and who are dying and going to hell to be proclaimed the truth of the gospel from our lips so that they might come into the light which we are in and we might rejoice with them forever as part of the body of Christ. We should be living missionally left where we at least have unbelieving friends. Number two reason is that we're probably not talking about Jesus enough or living radically counterculture enough for people to get upset with us. Let me tell you something. People were upset with Jesus. Did Jesus go into dark places? Absolutely. Did he drink wine at sinners' tables? Absolutely. Did he live missionally better than any of us will ever even imagine? But you read those stories, and there's something that stands out. His righteousness was always identifiable among them. He stood out. When you're in dark places, are you just another dark figure? Or do people point into the numbered masses and say that one right there stands out? Their righteousness is tangible. Some of us, however, find ourselves deeply within community, but we operate in ways with, which bring division instead of unity. We operate in ways that bring division instead of unity. These people often, to my experience, don't understand why they can't seem to belong. They go from church to church to church. They go from small group to small group to small group. This church is clicky. This church doesn't accept me. This church has something weird going on. I couldn't be a part of that. Blah, 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 blah. In sincerity and in love, I want you to hear me. The body will reject poison the body will work to reject poison. We have to press into community, but as in humility, we have to be able to be ready to discover that the common denominator for our problems is ourselves. Maybe the reason that you can't fit in because you keep unknowingly and unconsciously causing problems of division wherever you go i want i want you to pray about that i'm not saying is there a right time to leave is there a right time to go to a different church is it absolutely i'm just asking that you pray and press into community to discover that the problem might be you I don't wanna leave us in this despair, this demonstration of the way that we rebel against God's word. So let us look to the reality of the gospel, which is our hope. Jesus' finished work on the cross, it pardons the liar, the murderer, and the thief. And his resurrection assures that they will be restored to him and to one another. Jesus' finished work on the cross pardons the liar Me, the murderer, me, the thief, me, and his resurrection assures that they will be restored to him and to one another. Where our mouths were filled with deceit, Jesus places truth like the sweetest of honey. Where our anger breeds murder toward our brother, Jesus gives us strength to place our anger in his sovereign care where we once stole to meet our needs. Jesus places himself freely upon the table and calls us to come and feast of his flesh where we spoke to destroy one another. Jesus speaks to cast away the darkness that was destroying us. Praise God for the gospel that we can no longer walk as murderers and thieves and liars because Christ became that for us and is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. Amen? His forgiveness is poured out on us. We are reconciled and made friends who were once enemies. And he gives to us That which is so much greater that we never even knew that we wanted. This is what I'm talking about. We think we want things. We think we need things. And we get angry at God and we get angry at others when we don't get them. And God's waiting on the other side and said, I can give you this, but you'll come back hungry. You'll come back starving, thirsting for more. Or I can give you something so much better that you never even imagined you wanted. Be patient. Rest Press into community. Gospel yourself so that you know I'm working all things for your good. You see, our sin broke apart not only our relationship God desired for us to have with himself, but it also broke apart the relationship that he desired us to have with one another. Let me say that again. Our sin broke apart not only our relationship God desired for us to have with himself, but it also broke apart the relationship that he desired for us to have with one another. But Jesus's work mends that which our sin has broken apart. Let us walk this out in three ways as we are new people found in new community. Number one, seek to understand the new man in the context of the new community. So seek to understand yourself the new man you are in the context of the new community. Don't forsake the church. Press into the community around you to process the Spirit's work of sanctification in you. As you are contrasting the old man to the new man, bring others around you into the conversation so they can do two things. They can work to affirm what you are experiencing and they can gospel the weaknesses that are in your life. Seek affirmation of the Spirit's work in you and seek gospeling in the places that you are weak. So seek to understand the new man in the context of the new community. Number two, exercising righteousness in the new community creates a missional impact in our culture. Jesus declared this, he said, they will know you are mine by your love for one another. The church will or the world will not know you are Jesus' disciples necessarily or primarily by the way that you radically love them. Jesus declared the primary way in which they will know that you are his disciples is by the way that you love one another. And so as we live in the oneness that we are created and called into by the new man, by the work of the Spirit, the world on the outside looks in jealousy and desires to be a part of it. There's an actual missional impact when we live righteously the way that God has called us to as these new men and women. Thirdly, the key to oneness in community is forgiveness. That's right, there are 32 verses in this passage of scripture. You thought I, thought I skipped it, right? No. Actually, you're all saying no, we, none of us thought that at all. But it's not as dramatic. Verse 32 establishes this. <clears throat> it establishes the ultimate expectation for our conduct in community. Reality is this. We will all, in some ways, continue on in these past life behaviors. We have to be radically committed to walking in forgiveness so that oneness can be maintained. The church is not a place absent from pain and wrongdoing. We have to remember, in spite of the pain we experience in the church, that the gospel demonstrates to us the radical pursuit of oneness to be able to extend forgiveness to us, the ultimate keys, murderers and thieves. The ultimate key to oneness is not how well you behave but how radically you're committed to forgiving. You will be destroyed by people in this room. You will be hurt by me and others. You'll be feel like you are devalued, mistreated, distrusted. If we aren't radically committed to forgiving one another, We will allow the old man who we will all in some ways continue to walk in at times to destroy the church. And so again, the key to this unity, this oneness that God has called us to is not good behavior, but a radical commitment to forgiving one another. I pray that we can walk in the forgiveness that we've been extended. Who are we? But liars, murderers, and thieves. And who is God that He would forgive us? Should we withhold that from our brother?